I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Um, well, this is this is a wild honor. Um, uh, we are sitting down with the uh, with the honorable Carolyn Bennett. Carolyn is the first ever federal minister of mental health. And uh, boy, oh boy, I feel like we got a few questions uh, for for the honorable Carolyn. Um, mental health. I mean, that's been it's been a massive part of the conversations that we've been having over the last six years. Um, we we have a a sort of like unwritten rule within the podcast where we try to have at least one conversation uh, a month where we speak to someone who's struggling with mental health or addictions. And so um, we're just, we're so grateful to, to have time to sit down with you, Carolyn, to talk about um, the work that you do and, and what it means to be the, the federal minister of mental health. Um, I, I knew that, I know that this is like a, a new position. Um, why don't you take a, a moment to, first of all, introduce yourself to our listeners and, and give us a little bit of insight into what it means to be the uh, the federal uh, minister of mental health. Well, thank you. It, um, it, it's an honor uh, to be with uh, all of you. And it, it's, uh, yeah, the, because I think that these these real, real conversations about about health and the difference between well and sickness and and all of these things that you've been sorting out uh you know brilliantly and and with such a following so it's an honor for me to join you i think uh yeah as the first uh, minister of mental health and addictions but federally um but there have a lot of provinces and territories that decided they needed to to, to make sure there was a focus on this so hmm. i think six provinces now have uh, have done that and it's funny that we're doing this at the same time as our theme is to make sure that mental health is part of health, but, but Mm -hmm. we've just needed to separate it out just to have the focus um, because um, the physical medicine um, really has been um, uh, trumping, I think mental health care, both in the resources it's, you know, provided with in the provincial budgets, but, but I, uh, but I think that, um, you know, I don't know what you've noticed over the last six years, but I think during COVID, um, people have really, um, um, maybe whether it's the, the parallel pandemic or whether it's what um, people are just seem to be more comfortable admitting they're struggling um, <laughs> with mental health uh, and and substance use and that it uh, it may have begun to sort of decrease the stigma a little bit of letting people sort of admit that they're struggling and mm. and having them or the help navigate for a friend to to be able to seek help so mm. it's been a um a um 
a journey, you know, since uh, since the beginning of COVID. At the beginning of COVID, the Health Canada set up this uh, site in the, that first April um, called Wellness Together, where people could could uh, um, you know explore, browse the resources that are available, but also have access to twenty four seven counseling if they needed it people having anticipated uh that this was going to be tough on people um mm-hmm. oh look at that yeah. <laughs> you? this is this is my mental health uh um uh buddy uh donut he's uh he's a one-year-old one-year-old uh, in two days uh labradoodle he's he and he just hangs out at the studio with us. for for everybody <laughs> listening donut just oh, jumped wow. on the table he just jumped right in front of the camera <laughs> oh that's so great <laughs> we just lost our chocolate lab Oh. A year ago, but now we have a yellow, a yellow lab Ripley, and I was so excited oh. um, I, last month in um, at the University of Saskatchewan, seeing the the uh, the researchers on um, you know the the sort of pets for life kind of uh, yeah. mental health supports and the research they were doing, and uh, and it was a yellow lab um, just like Ripley. Um, yeah. And then a three-legged chocolate that was oh. just uh, oh, heartbreaking, God. but yeah. it was really, really nice. So the cutest uh, thing in the world. No, we we I even get to go and learn about you know how important uh, pets are to people's mental health. So well, uh, yeah, this I, is uh, pretty exciting. Yeah, I tell you, this this guy's been uh, he's seen me through some pretty rough times. So it's I, I'm mm-hmm. grateful to have him in my life. Carolyn, uh, I wanted to touch on something that you you said, like talking about the pandemic. Like obviously. Um, that has, I think people have uh, been encouraged to talk about how they've been feeling more because probably more people are talking about it, but it's also probably because more people have sort of been, I guess more people have been suffering through yeah. the pandemic yeah. too. Like the, I mean, it's safe to say the last two years has, has been nothing short of a, a massive challenge and, and, and has sort of rocked the lives of, of yeah. Many like a people. global so, catalyst. Yeah. And and we talked early on in the pandemic of like, hey, like maybe this will sort of like spark this like um, at least conversation or, or sense of awareness that will help to move the needle on some of the things that have been lagging uh, in terms of mental health care. Do you feel like there's this sort of, I guess, general, more general awareness that oh. mental health is important and is becoming more of a priority specifically because of the pandemic? Oh, yeah. I mean, I just think that 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 whole social disruption and people's lives changing, that it's almost like because everybody's in it, um, Mm. that I think people have felt more comfortable coming forward. But also, I I mean, the people who weren't well served before Mm -hmm. the pandemic in terms of their mental health needs or supports, were really not well served during COVID, and uh, and now we have this opportunity. <clears throat> My youth council always says, you know, Carolyn, we don't want to build back to anything. We want to leap forward into something better. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, the and so I think that that's where I think we are with uh, with mental health and substance use. That it um, it's taken down some of the veil mm-hmm. of you know, I'm okay. And mm. people have been able to to admit that uh, um, to friends and family that that they're struggling, and and we are seeing even in the two and a half million people who've accessed the Wellness Together platform, way more young people, males, um, uh, 
to us mm-hmm. LGBTQIA plus. I mean, uh, it's been a quite interesting that the people that haven't tended to admit that they're struggling seem to have mm-hmm. made felt that it was a little bit easier to do because of COVID. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, and I think the virtual care has really helped. I yeah. think that people don't have to go and sit in a waiting room of a psychiatrist. I mean, people can get help at home or on their phone. And, um, and I, I just think, you know, I would say 15 years ago, I was at Dalhousie and they were, you know, there was an adolescent mental health clinic and they were, they had been complaining that the kids weren't showing up for their appointments Mm. and they were late or all of that. And when they started to just allow them to do their, their appointment on the phone, everything just seemed to, to work that Mm. they could get that kind of regular help. And so I, uh, COVID's really pushed us into using the technology way better too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of of kind of looking forward and moving forward in in a positive direction, um, I'm wondering if you could. And I know that this is this is asking a lot, but um, wondering if you could sort of give us a, a a little bit of a rundown on on your new mandate um, of of you know what it is that you are focused on for the for the near future when we're looking at the the mental health and addictions issues that Canadians are facing today? Well, I think that uh, there's no question that top of mind is the people dying almost every day um, in the toxic drug supply. I mean, we just have to deal with this in a completely different way and rethink it. Uh, I've said to a lot of people that, uh, you know, my my dad was a police officer before World War II, and to the day he died at 93, he said that prohibition never worked. Mm. Um, all that mm. happened was a few people got really rich. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I think that, you know, the the strides that Vancouver and BC are trying to make on, you know, truly taking people out of the criminal justice system and moving into the health system is, you know, really admirable. Mm. Where I also um, am very serious about how we have to change things is on uh, the the sort of uh, being able to get people a, a, a regulated supply of whatever substance they're using mm. in the same way as booze is regulated mm-hmm. um, and you don't have to worry about going blind um, mm-hmm. that that you know that the drugs that people are using are so toxic and so uh, tainted that um, we are now seeing um a little bit of progress in BC. Uh, the death came down January, February, March. Um, I, you know, I think a lot of the, the, uh, the, you know, the coroner's office, I think believes that access to safer supply has been part of that. We now have approved the pharmaceutical grade diacetylmorphine, which is sort of like um, pharmaceutical heroin. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the lauded in vending machines. There's mm-hmm. um, doctors prescribing and that, um, when you see even the construction industry um, and the number of deaths that they're having, somebody who's had an injury gets prescribed something, then they get cut off and then they go to the street for their drugs. I don't, have you seen Dope Sick? Yeah. Uh, yes. Oh, on Netflix? Oh, oh, yeah. oh my word. Mm-hmm, like, yeah. I, it took me like a couple of months to be able to get through the eight episodes just because it's so shocking yeah. uh, when you see these people addicted and how powerful the addiction is. Um, that you, I think that is one of the other areas that we're really trying to move on stigma is reducing the stigma of the people mm. using drugs and, and, um, 
and how um, we can help support them in whatever way um, they need. Um, I, is it, is I, wanna, it, I just want to say that that may just hearing you say that. Yeah. Makes me so happy to yeah. hear. And how does well, he, how does the how, how what's the arc like that? That seems like we had a conversation a few probably a few years ago now about harm reduction with, and with Doctor uh, Mark Tyndall. Mark Tyndall from oh, yeah. out, out yeah. of UBC, and he's the vending machine guy. He's yeah. the allotted yes. machine. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Dispension. Yeah. And, and, yeah and we were doing. They're from Dartmouth, actually, the company. Yeah. And, and we yeah, were doing. Yeah. A, we were doing an episode at their at their offices and talking about this product and how it could be implemented in BC and how yeah. it could lead to harm reduction. And at the time. It sounded like we were the canaries in the coal mine. Like we were the like yeah. we that that was a that was a a far fetched idea or that was a fringe idea in terms of harm reduction. Um, and hearing you say that, being a federal minister, what is the arc to that 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 where you get to this place from a federal level of talking about harm reduction in that way. Cause that's seems like an uphill battle. Yeah. <laughs> it seems yeah. like a struggle. So, so harm reduction came in, you know, when we sort of, um, I guess it was, it, it was before I was the minister of public health. So, um, which was in Paul Martin's government from 2003 to 2006 for just before that, the insight site opened in the downtown east side which was a safe injection site and vancouver had really moved on the the sort of really drug policy for canada four pillars mm-hmm. um you know that the sort of the prevention uh, harm reduction uh treatment law enforcement right there were the four pillars during the Stephen Harper government, the harm reduction pillar got removed. So we lost a decade on bringing Canadians with us about how harm reduction saves lives. And, and I can remember once uh, I was at a Canadian Medical Association meeting uh, in Quebec and Tony Clement, who was then the Minister of Health, was like literally hectoring all the doctors in the room about the Hippocratic Oath and how can you condone this behavior of harm reduction and all of that. And it was horrible. Um, and I, I mean, I, I put, went out of the room and I got scrummed and I think Andre Picard from the globe, there were, mm-hmm. and I mean, I was just, my jaw dropped and I just looked into the camera and said, you cannot help people if they're dead. Mm. And and yeah. and I uh, and I you know I don't think I you know and I think that's what we're trying to do and what I was really interested in in terms of that arc that you're talking about is uh, there was a debate in the House of Commons um, um, uh, that uh, Dr. Hanley, who was the medical officer of health in the Yukon before he got elected, where they've got quite a serious um, opioid crisis. Um, and he was sort of let off the debate, but oh my word, from all parties in the house to hear that this toxic drug supply and the deaths are just the circles getting smaller and smaller and smaller till it's people they know. Um, mm. It's not we and they anymore. And uh, like Mike Lake, you know, even last week in in Mental Health Week, talking about his father dying of an oxycontin overdose. Um, you know, th- this is this is close to people now and that 
that that mm-hmm. my advocacy advocacy group called Mom Stop the Harm, mm-hmm. you know, who are, you know, you know, they, you know, present themselves as upstanding parents of kids who died um, that aren't the stereotypic um, downtown east side or, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, it's just their son in mm-hmm. a bedroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was so- uh, and it's it's so I I I think the arc is 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 uh, bending. Yeah. D- does that does that enable? Because I imagine like even even hearing you mention that the the deaths are down the last three months in in BC. Um, incremental change is I guess like small change is easy to make over time, but like it gets I feel like it gets to this point where it sort of plateaus and it requires like some really new innovative approach to actually make that difference to get to a place where like, instead of uh, a ton of people dying every month, it's, you know, less, uh, significantly less. And, and when we talk about change and politics, those two things don't usually go <laughs> well together. I've, I feel like we always hear about the red tape and the resistance to change. Mm. So uh, I imagine that a large part of your job is trying to push through these things that, that can enable large change to happen through the innovation that exists. And I'm, I'm curious, like what sort of things are on the table or being considered to like actually make that next step forward and making a big impact um, so, in this crisis. Yeah. So I think the, the movement to regulated supply, you know, uh, that is, and that doctors should, should feel more comfortable prescribing medicine um, mm. that people need and are using that pharmacists could be used to help find that molecule that's closer to what the person's been taking and then you know have a, have a plan the uh it has been uh, i think that when you see um the new statement coming out of the college of physicians and surgeons in british columbia which is far more favorable um, and less punitive <laughs> to the doctors prescribing. But we also are seeing that whether it's nurse practitioners or pharmacists, or there's many people pushing for something more like a compassion club. But I I do think, you know, Dr. Christy Sutherland in the downtown east side, um, there was a great article in the Globe and Mail last month, um, just before we went out to BC to meet with her. And, you know, she's got powdered fentanyl um, that's being used by the compounding pharmacist in a sort of um, green, yellow, red capsule that that she prescribes. Mm. They take the prescription to the pharmacy. They fill the prescription, <laughs> and and then they give feedback on maybe it needs a little bit more caffeine or a little bit more glucose. Mm. Or they're they're working with the people using drugs to get it right, um, but then that's totally legal. It's, there's nothing illegal about that system where you get a prescription, you go to the pharmacy, you fill it. And, um, and, and I think that that's, that's eventually uh, where we have to go. Now, some people don't think it should have to be a physician that prescribes. And I saw, I was looking over the weekend at this uh, study out of the University of California, San Francisco, where pharmacists, you know, um, oh no, I, I'm, I'm getting my stories mixed up. That was actually on the abortion pill, but I think that there was a study not there. 
the University of California one was on the abortion pill, but the meaning the increasing role of pharmacists, mm. whereas pharmacists on narcotics were able to renew prescriptions during COVID. Mm. And so we could maybe get them more involved in how, how you do this, you know, across the, across the country. So I, mm. I think that um, like Dr. Tyndall and the Dilaudid machines, but um, um, he, um, Dr. Sarita in London, Ontario, that there's, I think, quite a movement um, to mm. get to a regulated supply. And I think that's going to be how we'll save the most lives. Are you tired of hearing the same old wellness advice? It's time to dig deeper and listen to America Dissected from Crooked Media, the podcast that's cutting into the science, culture, and policy that shapes our health. From doctors fighting for their rights to the surprising truths about sunscreen, America Dissected dives deep into the state of health. Tune in every Tuesday for new episodes of America Dissected, available on all major podcast platforms. Uh, in your in your mandate, um, I, I I saw that there was um, there was some stuff about like virtual care and the importance of virtual care, and and you you've brought it up a couple of times. Um, Wellness Together Canada. Um, this is actually new to me. I, I'm not super familiar with Wellness Together Canada, and 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 I'm sure that uh, there's a lot of our listeners that are kind of in the same boat as me. Can you can you give us a, a bit of a rundown on on what Wellness Together Canada is? Um, how it's being implemented, how people can sort of get involved if, if it's something that they feel like they need to take part in? Yeah, so the consortium came together at the beginning of COVID and it, you know, the kids help phone, you know, mm-hmm. and then it was Homewood and the Step Care Canada people. Um, and and they they came together to to try and figure out how could they form this collective that could get people the care they need when they need it. Um, but also put all the resources out there that people could browse them. And then in January, um, we released the pocket well app, um, which has the mood meter and some of the other things. I think there's also been a concern by a number of, of, um, practitioners, Dr. Senator Kutcher, others that there's a whole bunch of apps out there that may not be that great. And Mm. so how do we get one um, where it's evidence-based and being continually monitored who's coming, you know, um, what kind of care are they getting and, and, uh, and is it, are they feeling satisfied with the care? And so far the evaluations of wellness together um, have been very good. uh, And we know there's going to be, you know, some, some tweaks we'll have to do to get to some of the, the, the lesser well-served communities, but mm-hmm. uh, um, the first nations Inuit Métis hope for wellness is there so that there's a, um, a number of opportunities, I think for people to really give us feedback on it, go mm-hmm. have a look at it. Um, and then maybe people would, uh, would have a look. One of the things that's really interesting in stepped care and whether it's the uh, strongest families that also came out of Atlantic Canada, uh, Brian, uh, that uh, actually out of Newfoundland. If you think of um, the stepped care, and and one of the things that's been 
part of step care has been this real movement around having services that are integrated for youth so they don't have to go to five different organizations to get what they need. They can get peer counseling. They can have a family doctor. They can have a family doctor and then somebody with special interest in mental health or addiction. They can have somebody help them with, you know, find a place to live or get a job or do better in school. And so that this movement of integrated youth services has been very, very important. But the stepped care model is also um, part of wellness together as to how are people getting the service that they need or do they need to step it up to the next level of care? Mm. Um, and uh, it was uh, really interesting to me that that uh, in the work that we're trying to do on post-secondary um, um, mental health supports, that, that there's lots of people sort of um, understanding that somebody might just need a peer counselor, somebody needs a social worker. Almost everybody needs a family doctor or, or a nurse practitioner that can help them with the physical things as well. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but it's been, uh, I think, uh, interesting that this hub model or integrated model for youth, that there's a consensus that it has to be to 25, that mm -hmm. the youth isn't to 18 anymore. Mm -hmm. And that, and that nine out of 10 provinces have bought into this. Um, and, uh, and I think, um, even that conference that I was at today or of the people coming together, that may will become a national standard mm -hmm. that young people, wherever they live, um, should be able to access that kind of um, one-stop shopping um, for their health and mental health needs. Yeah. That's really interesting that you mentioned the brain that, that, that you mentioned that to go to 25, because which I, you know, like we have so many things that legally at, like, le like, legally adults start at 18 we have so many like things that that happen at that point but the brain doesn't stop developing until like 25 yeah. ish yeah. you know obviously there's a with some wiggle room there depending on the person but i mean my, mine was done developing at eight but i'm not gonna i'm not here to brag or anything you're you're, you're mine's special, still developing. i'm, a, I'm, outlier. I'm, I'm an outlier. a special case it's all but good so, jeremy jeremy which even with cf and cystic fibrosis that that you've been so like you know, I had patients as I think, you know, I was a family doctor. And so I had, I had patients that when they aged out at 18 and couldn't go to sick kids anymore and mm. had to go across the street, um, you know, to one of the other institutions, they lost all their care. They had to change their mental health supports. They mm. had, you know, whether it was a brain tumor or whether it was, you know, some uh, chronic illness that, that this, this, you know, this idea that stuff stops when you, your 18th birthday, mm -hmm. I was just reading, uh, uh, five little Indians, you know, that one Canada reads. And when you think that these people were turfed out of residential school, when they mm -hmm. hit their birthday with no supports, no nothing. And it's no different as people come out of foster care, um, and, and are so vulnerable when they age out of care. So I, I think we have to, I think on one of the youth chats this weekend for the mar the march out of Hamilton, the uh, you know in the chat, a young person said, "Yeah, you know, twenty five is the new eighteen or you know." So you know, it's uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I I think that's a good idea. Yeah, and I, we've heard. I mean, we we've heard from so many people over the over the years about um, that transition from like from from childhood care to, to adult care has been so, it, it, you know, 
Yeah. A, a lot of a lot of my friends that live with CF, myself included, like that was one of the most challenging things I've ever had to go through. You know, and, is, chal- is, is and challenging that. and challenging from the from well, depending on the pro every I think every province has an issue with this. I know Nova Scotia does in particular about the the challenge for 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 accessing like a family uh, a family physician. Well, yeah. I I wanted to make that point and ask about that because I I find that when it comes to mental health care, one of the most common things that we seem to hear is how hard it is to access. And thinking about my own personal experience, so through the pandemic and it really because of this podcast and talking to people who had talked about talk therapy um, last year, just over a year and a half ago, I decided to speak to a therapist. And initially I just thought oh, like I hear that this is a good thing. I'm not really sure. I don't really, can't really identify any specific traumas in my life, but like I hear it's a healthy thing to do. Um, I want to do it. I want to go and have this experience. And it's the uh, probably the single greatest thing I've ever done in my entire life was a decision to go to a talk therapist. Now for me, one, it's, it's really expensive. I, and I mm. believe that one, I'm privileged enough to be able to afford it. And, and that, for me, that's amazing. But I understand that a lot of people, um, aren't able to pay to see, to speak to a therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is, is that, and I, I find this is interesting because I talk about, um, going to therapy. I oftentimes get a lot of, um, emails or messages personally asking, asking me how, how somebody else can can see a therapist. So they're asking like, what is the process in going? Because it doesn't, it's not really clear to people like, how do you find the best therapist? And oftentimes I point them to psychologytoday.com and I tell them how you can go and sort of, you know, search for a therapist by different criteria. And, you know, um, oftentimes there's there's free um, consultation sessions that you can go to. Um, but one, the obvious barrier to entry is the ability to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And then two, um, I don't have a family doctor. My family doctor retired, um, this year and I had not been seeing them before. And now it's like almost impossible to see, uh, a GP in Nova Scotia. So unless you have like somebody referring you into the system or you have the ability to pay for private care like that, it seems like it's almost impossible to get mental health care or access to mental health care and and this is just for, from somebody who's like you know thinks that it's a good thing to go and do and is going to proactively yeah. take care of that You're not i can't imagine crisis. somebody yeah. who's in crisis or yeah. experiencing an emergency and, and to your point brian yeah. like we 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 knowing that we were going to be speaking to you uh carolyn we we actually put out to all of our listeners if they had questions that they would like to to ask you if they had the opportunity and overwhelmingly everybody wrote in asking about the the barriers to to Access you know, care, accessibility yeah. and and the cost associated with mental health care so it, it, the history around this is that um and and just to start uh, that's my job to try and get mental health back into the public system mm-hmm. how, how do we how do we make sure that people have what they need when they need it and um but the history around this is because the canada health act um, was mainly guaranteed um, the care of doctors and hospitals. And at the time, um, social workers, psychologists, uh, occupational therapists, all those people were in hospital. Mm. And then the 90s came and cost containment. And all of those allied professionals got 
turfed out of hospitals mm -hmm. and and to a large extent into the private sector. So my job is to try and figure out how do we get them back in into that kind of team approach, you know, that that is with, the, you know, the hub model for youth. Now, how do you get them it paid for in a different way? Um, you know, one of my I was very lucky um, when I was in practice that one of my my colleagues in the practice had been a previous social worker who then went to med school. Um, most of us in med school were kind of trained on mental health. Um, but what the College of Family Physicians is now saying is that they want, um, they think that they're, you know, those of the certi those certified aren't comfortable in mental health, addictions, pain, those kinds of things. And they may increase their, their years of study from two to three or four. So, you know, I think that we, we do need, I mean, I, I'm a bit of a, um, you know, cheerleader for everybody needs a family doctor, but mm. everybody needs a family doctor that's prepared to do feelings. Yeah. Um, you know, totally. Like yes. you, you, yeah. you can't be only one problem per, you know, and if you come in with a stub toe, you're not allowed to talk about how, you know, mm really how your relationship's going or how mm. you're worrying about something. And the other piece that has been really interesting um, with what Dr. Kucher's been doing uh, on mental health literacy is trying to get people the right words to use about their feelings. And I think talk therapy helps with that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that you, um, you know, and, and as, as a teacher of family medicine, I used to be able to teach people how uh, to the students to say, you look happy, you look sad, you look worried, uh, you look angry. Uh, and if, if we can start to talk about that kind of rapport, recognizing someone else's feelings, that it helps us deal with our own. And that's, mm -hmm. I think, what some of the pocket well and, um, and, and the, you know, wellness together um apps are doing but i think we we need to then if you, everybody had a family doctor and we know who that that in terms of talk therapy not everybody's a fit right mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. sometimes you just go this won't work <laughs> and um but the family doctor can say, okay, we're i know that didn't work let's try so and so instead mm -hmm. or you know or a group or, you know, yeah. when people are going through similar things. It, um, it feels like the, to me, and maybe this is part of like the sort of stigma or stereotype around general practitioners is that I think of them as general practitioners of physical health care. Right. And yeah. I don't think of them as general <clears throat> practitioners of physical and mental health care. And I think that whether or not, I don't know if I'm right in thinking that, but I think that there needs to be a shift. Well, so that is included. I want to, I want to, I want to ask you, uh, Carolyn, about about your. <clears throat> I'm, well, I'm really happy to hear you say that about about your your hope for family physicians that they're that 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 becomes that that becomes very much a part of uh, of their um, of their training and of their experience with mm -hmm. with dealing with their patients. That that's very much that mental health is very much involved. I want to know. I want to know about what your experience was as a family physician. You know, dealing with obviously not you know specific people, but what your experience generally was with um, dealing with people and, and what you kind of saw with mental health and addictions out of at, at, in relation to your family practice. And I also kind of want to give a little bit of context to 
something that Brian told me recently, which really kind of blew me away, which was the statistic that you shared with me not that long ago about how people felt about mental health. Yeah, we actually, with the other company that I work for, we just did a, a study commissioned by the Canadian Mental Health Association of, uh, of Nova Scotia. And the most um, alarming statistic to come out of that was the, the uh, portion of people who, the, the majority of people who went to see a general practitioner about their mental health, there was the strongest correlation with having a negative overall health experience with the mental health care system Ooh. as a whole. And it was like, it was staggering the number, which blew me away because I was thinking like, that's probably the point where people are, are going to Ooh. most to seek yeah, and care. I, I, to be honest, I was an examiner in the College of Family Practice and a lot of the questions that we, or the scenarios, we used to have to do sim simulated um, office orals and we had to play the patient and a lot of the cases or the scenarios were to do with mental health. And, um, and I must say, I would have failed those people. <laughs> like yeah. y y this isn't optional that you do feelings. Uh, you know, I, I said that one of my classmates once said, I don't do feelings. And, and I said at a conference the other day, well, if you, if you don't want to do feelings, then you shouldn't be a doctor. Mm -hmm. Like, it, like it's, it's, we have to do feelings and that, and that is, um, that is about keeping people well and, yeah. and, and understanding it, the, the wording, I think that Dr. Kutcher's worried about in terms of mental health literacy, and they've done a handbook actually for parliamentarians, um, and our staff on making sure we're using the right language after, after somebody dies, you're grieving, you don't have a depression. Um, like if you're really, really stressed, um, that's not an anxiety state. An anxiety state is when there's nothing to worry about and you're still worrying. Right. Mm. Uh, and so that, that we have to understand the pathology versus normal feelings. And then with PTSD, we have to help people at that six week period after something bad happened to make sure that people are now getting onto a better path. Um, if not, then how do we navigate and steer them to help? And that's what Dr. Kutcher used to do in the developing world that after a volcano or an earthquake, he would be in there training the, the barbers, the hairdressers, the taxi drivers, the bartenders to recognize in their clients that they, they, they weren't handling this very well and would, yeah. <laughs> would need some help. Yeah. So, you know, we all should be equipped with that kind of mental health literacy and it and it means in high school you know i th i think health classes could change a little bit from you know birth control and condoms mm. and not smoking <laughs> mm -hmm. um into actually how to take care of the mental health of mm. yourself as mm -hmm. well as for your friends and colleagues well, it's interesting now too because we're seeing like mental health first aid courses yeah. popping up in and yeah. those i i've heard are like I, I, I would love to take one, but yeah. I've, mm -hmm. I've heard that they're profoundly like recognizing um, powerful, like somebody who might be having a panic attack and being able yeah. to totally like yeah. help them as much as you can in the moment that they're mm -hmm. experiencing I, that. In terms of all this, like especially with with the the conversation about like the barriers to access and and the costs associated with mental health, um, like what like what kind of <laughs> like what as 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 
as your as, as your position where you stand right now, like what kind of power do you have to actually make those changes? To you know, like what what are the what are the steps that you have to take in order to to see the change come that we that we're really hoping to see over the next you know five six seven years. So you asked about the mandate, and so one of the things that the prime minister has put in my mandate is that we we need a mental health strategy for the country built on these sort of evidence-based national standards. What should everybody be able to expect wherever they live? And, and, and then we get to craft a mental health transfer to the provinces and territories, negotiate those just like they did with the childcare agreements. You know, what's the data we need back? What are the outcomes? What, 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 how do we negotiate that with all of the provinces and territories? Because they still are responsible for healthcare. Um, but, but, you know, I think we as the federal government always feel health of the population is a shared responsibility and that we need to do whatever we can to help. And so, you know, I think that we can, you know, one of the, in my mandate, I'm being asked to help with post-secondary education and, and the mental health supports there. And so what can mm. we do to help the institutions, but by listening to the students, what do they need in that stepped care model of more peer counselors, those kinds of things. We, mm. I think um, what we're doing in terms of changing the attitudes is obviously I get, you know, in the last budget, I got a hundred million dollars um, to invest in, in the various programs around substance use and harm reduction around the country. Um, and and they're doing a good job, I think, on stigma and on mm. on changing the way people um, see people using drugs. And so we've got, you know, um, last week I was able to announce, you know, a little bit of money for a change in the way people deal with withdrawal and detox, a change the mental health of newcomers coming to this this country and make sure those children um, are ready for school uh, and mm. and and in in a in looking after their mental health and and sense of belonging. So um, it has to be a collaboration. Um, you know, it's cooperation, collaboration, communication, and a sort of clarity of who does what when. Mm. But we're also finding that uh, lots of the municipalities are interested in working with us as well. So. My, I deal with the counterparts in the provinces and territories who have those responsibilities, but we're also able to fund the research <laughs> that mm. shows the proof of, proof of concept. Um, and, and then once there's an evidence based about what works and what doesn't work, surely provinces and territories would want to do something that works. And, and save money on all the visits to emerge and all of the things that really hospitalizations that if you can put put more investments upstream, um, you know, we can mm. persuade provinces and territories to save a lot of money on the really mm. expensive stuff. Yeah. Um, like the frequent flyers to emerge. The to that point about the, you know, the research and the 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 work going into like finding that data. Um, a good friend of ours, Jesse Heyman, who who formerly worked for Jack.org, uh, now works for um, Green Space Mental Health Canada. Um, we were talking to him about about having this conversation. And one of the things that he brought up that he was kind of curious about that uh, that I thought was really interesting, and and he brought up a good point was he, he was saying how you know we, we've 
and we've we mentioned this earlier, we've seen a lot of progress, it seems, um, on mental health education and and like shame reduction over the last five or six years. Um, at least since doing this podcast, we've noticed it. And and it seems that the mental health and addiction space is not really yet up to the the same standards as other medical industries, especially surrounding having data to like know what works and and what best helps people get better. Um, depending on their their specific struggles or story. So I guess my my question is like, what does the mental health and addictions industry need to prioritize or or change so that we're constantly improving the, the quality of care that that can be available to people? Well, I you're absolutely right. We need better data. And it, one of the good things about um, dealing with British Columbia, they probably have better data than mm. other places and Manitoba in their health policy unit have access to data, but a lot of the data has just been billing data. It's, mm. it's what the diagnosis you wrote down um, on the billing cards, administrative data. Mm. Uh, I don't have access to even deaths by opioids, except the coroner's reports six months later. Mm. I don't have any access to the people who almost died, who ended up in a merge. So how do, how do we get that, thirst for real-time data that we learned very fast in COVID about how, how, how many people in hospital, how many people in the ICU, how many people died. Um, We need that quality and, and granular data on Mm. mental health and, and, and addictions. And I think that we can push hard in the way we organize the mental health transfer. Do do you think that, do you think that because we just experienced this with COVID, and because the way that we've seen this like very quick, like quick to action for, for those types of stats, do you think that that is going to help um, the, you know, the mental health industries sort of be able to be able to put the, that sort of action together? Because we've, we've seen it happen on the physical side. We've seen it happen due to the pandemic. So with that example, do you think it makes it easier to, to have a like to have a case to kind of bolster and put forward to say, well, we also need this data? Just Absolutely. Because I think this is always the thing. Are we measuring what matters? Mm. <laughs> and and everybody says, if you, you know, it, it, it is, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it, it is about what aren't we measuring mm. that, um, that would really help us get better results. So when in that same case, you know, cost containment of the nineties, where everybody was trying to keep people's visits to hospital really, really short. And people were being sent home too sick too soon. Mm. Instead of measuring the length of stay, we had to measure the readmission rates Mm. (laughs) because that the readmission rate was a much better indicator of whether people had had good care or not. Mm. And so that's, you know, are we asking the wicked questions um, up and, and are we measuring something that's a little bit more difficult to get at? Cause we're not already measuring it, mm-hmm. but absolutely we should, we should be able to, to, uh, get better data and get better results. Mm-hmm. And there was something, there was something in that, um, in, in the, the email that Jesse sent back to us, um, when we reached out to him that, that, that stuck out to me and, and I immediately wrote you and mm-hmm. said, we should, you know, we should have another conversation about this on the podcast, which was a case study from his, uh, that his organization had conducted where they looked at, um, uh, working with, uh, somebody 
um, who is experiencing addiction and in their recovery that instead of, instead of saying um, over a period of time going, uh, going back to the, um, the, the, the person handling the, uh, handling their case and, and saying, how do you feel like, how, how do you feel in your recovery uh, compared to the last time we spoke and ha- and asking that person to recall and and basically judge how they feel compared to how they felt the last time that they spoke, they implemented a, a number of assessments for that person to do in between sessions along the way so that there was a visualized representation of that person's recovery. And so that if they showed up on the day and had the conversation with somebody and they sa- and they were in a particularly low place at that time, mm-hmm. they might not be able to judge how they feel very accurately, but having these assessments to do along the way was this visual representation Ooh. and allowed that person to, and, and allowed people at this clinic that the case study was done with mm-hmm. to have much higher rates of recovery success. It's, mm. it's also interesting yeah. to look at in terms of uh, the data, the, the, like one of the things that came out of our study was, was looking at correlations. So not necessarily the, the things that you, you might be asking specific questions, but some of the most interesting stories from the data might come from things that you weren't asking that show up in in the correlation of of mm-hmm. the answers you're receiving. So an example of that is that we found um, marginalized people had more confidence in their mental health care journey if they first sought help through an, a school institution. So if they went to access mental health care through the school, it seemed that they were much better received than if they went to a hospital or a doctor's office, which is, I mean, you never know to ask about that thing, but when you identify, you can start to ask, well, why, what, what is different about that scenario than these other two scenarios? What are they doing differently? And how can we learn from that? Because otherwise we don't know, we wouldn't even know that it's a different experience for these people. And what it really comes down to is how is this person experiencing this process? Because if it's not good, then it's not working. Right. I I uh, I have one one final question um, uh, for you, Carolyn, and and th- this is uh, this is again coming from from one of our one of our listeners, one of our patrons, uh, Jen. Um, Jen asked, um, I, I'd be interested to hear what they're doing specifically for the two SLGBTQIA plus community. Um, is she aware that the government currently requires recommendation from a psychiatrist for many gender affirming surgeries? And that the wait time is upwards of one to two years. So I guess what what is in the plan? What is in the mandate for for support for the the two uh, SLGBTQIA plus community? Uh, the research the research is is becoming more and more rich, uh, mm. and and really you know documenting the kinds of things that you're saying about how how difficult it is um, to have whether it's a, you know, in my day when I was in family practice and got chatted by chat, that meant was it, was I a gay pro- positive practice or not? Mm. Um, that you, you end up knowing that you, you don't want a dead end. You don't want people going to someone, you know, that then is going to steer them to conversion therapy. I mean, this mm. is, this is still really serious. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, you know, I think um, we met with this great doctor at the University of Manitoba on Friday, who's doing exactly that research, um, 
funded by the Canadian Institutes of Health Research about um, that there it was um, it was the uh, mainly um, gay men and men having sex with men, but it it was a you know a, a a study to just see how their mental health was doing. He hadn't been researching any trans research, but that mm -hmm. is separate. But we mm -hmm. absolutely know that we that in terms of the kinds of research we have to do, we have to be there. Um, finding out those kinds of things that somebody's mm. waiting way too long. Um, and, uh, and, and when people um, have known that they've been mispackaged, mm. um, you know, how, how do we do that kind of affirming mm. journey um, uh, uh, that is safe? Mm -hmm. And so uh, when I was in med school, one of my mom's friends uh, was uh, Dr. Betty Steiner at the Clark Institute. And she was doing the gender identity clinic. It was a two-year program, but I, I have to tell you that was in 1974. Mm, wow. <laughs> so like even that long ago, mm. people, you know, were, were dealing with this issue of gender identity. And, you know, if it took two years back then, um, I don't quite know what's happening now, but I sure want to know because I just think, some people are are really, uh, you know, uh, in 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 such pain um, mm -hmm. that the, and and with nowhere to go, mm -hmm. um, you know, and until they get that appointment. Well, Carolyn, I got to say, uh, th this is uh, it, it, again a true honor to be able to sit down and and to to get some time to speak with you. I know that you're a busy woman. And uh, and to sit down with a couple of yokels like us, I, I, I don't know how we ended up here, but um, we are we're so grateful and uh, we're we're really we're rooting for you. And we're really hoping to see see the changes that we really need to see, because obviously, especially after the pandemic, you know, we're, we're coming into, I think, a really challenging time for the for the mental health and addiction sector. And there's obviously a lot of work to do, to be done. You've got your work cut out for you, but uh, but uh, we're we're definitely rooting for you. So thank you so much for for doing this. It really does. Well, thank mean a you. Lot. And if if people want to have a look at the PocketWell app, it does have uh, Taylor the mood meter for every day to to just figure out where where you are in the curve, um, mm -hmm. and or the wellness together. But we'd love some feedback from your listeners. Just anything that you find out that uh, something that could be tweaked a little bit. We know the stigma in certain communities is much higher. Certainly my South Asian uh, colleagues in parliament are very worried that, you know, there's certain people that just aren't allowed to say they're struggling. Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. so uh, whatever you can find out in those, those questions or the, the patterns, um, I'd love to know. And, you know, maybe we can do this again and we, you mm -hmm. can, uh, you can figure out uh, if we've, done well enough on our journey here in terms of this the real opportunity to make things better for people i would really Certainly. like that yeah thank you so much that is it for this week's edition of routine checkup thank you so much for tuning in folks it means the world to us and if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast you can do that right here on mondays wednesdays and fridays and of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, 
Tell someone that you don't know that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.